Hello again, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Meanwhile in Athens. My name is Eric, and uh, I know that we have been on hiatus for the last few months, so I do appreciate your patience while waiting for the next episode. I will make it up to you today. We have a very special episode with uh, Dr. Jonathan Layton, and he will be talking a little bit about the organization that he has started, which is designed to prevent intense suffering. And so he will be talking a lot about the work that he's been doing for this organization and I hope that you enjoy the episode. If you have any comments, please feel free to let me know. If you enjoy this podcast, uh, you may consider as well joining my Patreon. I will have the link in the podcast description below. So without further ado, let's get started. Okay, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Meanwhile in Athens. My name is Eric. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. Today on the show, we have a very special guest, Jonathan Layton, originally from Canada, so a fellow Canadian, my first fellow Canadian to be speaking with. He is currently now in Athens, Greece, and had a very interesting history, has been studying molecular biology, and then has gone into different issues relating to ethics and compassion, and has uh, started an organization for prevention of intense suffering, which is obviously uh, a wonderful thing to be trying to avoid, but I will let him get into all of the details on that. So uh, welcome, Jonathan. Thank you for joining. Thanks for having me on, on your podcast. My pleasure. Maybe initially you can talk a little bit about your upbringing in Canada and, and what brought you to Southern Europe. Well, I grew up in Montreal and I did my undergraduate uh, degree in the States. And and initially, I came to Switzerland just with the idea of spending a year living in Europe before going to grad school. I thought it would be fun to go skiing in the Alps on the weekends and improve my French. Even though I grew up in Montreal, my French was still school French, so we, I didn't actually use it very much. And as it happened, I ended up getting a job in Basel, Switzerland, which is, uh, first of all, it's German-speaking. So I, I ended up improving my French as well, but I ended up learning German as well. And I ended up liking it. And what was intended to be just one year ended up being a permanent move. I did go back to the States for a year of grad school, and, and then I interrupted the program because I really wanted to come back and live in Europe because basically I felt more at home in Europe. I felt mm -hmm. more of an affinity with a culture. So I ended up living in Switzerland for many years. And that's actually still officially where I have my base, uh, although not in the German part anymore. I, aside from Basel, I lived in Zurich for a few years and then uh, and then ended up settling in Lausanne. But I, I haven't really been spending much time there lately. Right. And that is the French-speaking part? Yeah, it's on it's on Lake Geneva. Um, right. Uh, you know, the headquarters of uh, the International Olympic Committee is there. About a half-hour train ride from Geneva, where I was also working for a few years. Yeah, I mean, as far as Europe goes, I think Switzerland is really such a fascinating place with the, the German area, the French area, and the Italian area, and there's just so much diversity between those. So it's 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 a very interesting place to be settling in Europe because you kind of get exposed to a few different cultures within one country, I imagine. And in Basel, uh, where I was living initially, uh, it's right on the border with France and Germany. So there's something really exciting about uh, actually being able to you know get on my bicycle and decide what country I feel like exploring. That sort of confluence of, of different cultures there. And yeah, just the accessibility of, uh, I mean, you know, even though Switzerland has, I mean, there are mountains everywhere, well, almost everywhere, but uh, there's a lot of diversity even within the small country. And, you know, like every valley is different from one another. It's a great place to explore. 
I was actually in Zurich uh, myself uh, the, for the last week of December. It was my first time in Switzerland and, and I really did enjoy it, um, despite the, the weather not being the, the best. But it's a place that I would definitely want to go back to maybe in the summer and also see some of the other parts, Basel or Geneva or the Italian region. I forget the name of the city. Locarno. Yeah, exactly. So for, for a small country, I think it would definitely have a lot to explore. Cool spot to have been. Yeah, no, I love living there. I mean, uh, but yeah, after a while, I I found it was time for a change. And I actually moved to Mallorca and I spent about four years living there. Again, not officially, you know, I was still, my, my base was still Switzerland, but I was actually physically in Mallorca a good part of the time for about four years before I, before I actually started spending time in Greece. And what was it that kind of drew you to Greece? So when I was living in Mallorca, I mean, it was a it was a really good period of my life in in some ways because it was a chance to get away from some of the rigidity of the of Swiss society, live in a, in somewhat of a freer place, free in the sense that there were a lot of other expats who'd sort of escaped the more you know the, the sort of the corporate world and were doing things like yoga and meditation. It was just beautiful living by the sea. Mallorca is really a fantastic place, even though it has a reputation for being more of a tourist destination, but it's a great place to live as well. Having said that, um, I felt a little bit detached from the real world, whatever that means. Every place is, is in some way part of the real world, and Mallorca is it's faced with the same kinds of problems that many other cities do and has its own issues. But I did feel a little bit detached from where maybe more was going on that... Uh, I guess I felt I wanted to be somewhere with a little bit more of a sort of a vibrant urban vibe. And and, and again, you know, Mallorca has got a, a big city, Palma, which is a really a great place. But I felt I wanted to be a little bit more in the center of where things were happening. And just as it happened, uh, a good friend of mine was planning to spend some time in Athens. And I thought it would be a good opportunity to explore a new city. And that was the uh, end of 2017. So we made plans uh, at the end of the summer that I would come spend a few weeks there and overlap with him. Well, basically what happened was I ended up getting to know a bunch of people very quickly. Athens and Greece in general started to become more of a uh, of a base for me. Yeah, it kind of, uh, I think that does it to a lot of people when <laughs> they come for a short period and kind of get really uh, entranced by, I mean, it's got so much wonderful nature on the mainland. And before you even talk about, of, of course, all the islands, there's so much history and, and so much to explore. So I, I kind of felt a similar thing happen to me when I came as well, you know, initially for just a, a few months. And then I was doing half a year here, half a year in Prague, and then eventually coming here full-time so i can definitely relate to that <laughs> sort of experience yeah, yeah i've had also had a bit of uh spending, you know, spending increasing amounts of time here my initial experience was uh right in the heart of things in exarchia i was living for a few weeks at the beginning uh right near the polytechnic uh, university and i literally arrived a day or two before the uh the annual demonstrations which i think are on november 17th so there was actually tear gas entering the apartment where i was staying and, you know, a car, a car that was burned out the next morning. Yeah, so I got the full Exarchia experience <laughs> as an introduction to Athens. You get through that and then everything else will start to smell better after. Yeah. So maybe tell us a little bit about how your career has progressed. I mean, to, to go from studying biology to then becoming more interested in in, in ethics and compassion and, and, and the sort of organization that you've started. Was there some, you know, specific incident or specific moment that turned out or was it a gradual progression? Yeah, I think it was probably a gradual progression. 
I was motivated initially to go into science, partly out of curiosity to understand how things work, but also with the hope that by doing scientific research, I'd be able to make some sort of contribution to humanity, you know, maybe, um, you know, work on on, uh, on treating cancer uh, using the tools of immunology. That was an idea I had. But as it turned out, I ended up getting farther away from scientific research for a number of reasons. First of all, the, the area where I did my PhD in Basel, it's not really something I was, I ended up being that passionate about. And, um, and I also realized I wasn't that interested in doing academic research. I ended up spending several years uh, in the fragrance industry, which was, you know, fun at first. And then I, I found myself increasingly distant from things I cared about and, and my interest in making some sort of contribution to the world. But what happened as well was that I, uh, I was writing a lot of notes and, and, and short essays that reflected my thoughts about what's going on in the world. I realized that what I wanted to do was to use these, um, these various thoughts and notes as the basis for a book. And I ended up finally just quitting my, my job and, and, and using the time to put a book together, uh, which ended up being a book about ethics. And I say ended up because I didn't know when I started writing it that it was going to be a book about ethics. But I wanted to understand why there was so much suffering in the world uh, and put those thoughts uh, into writing. So the book was really a way of sort of combining my scientific perspective on the world with an attempt to answer the question, what matters? As the book developed, it became clear that, what I was, that this was really a book uh, about ethics, about how to determine what our priorities should be. That was the first thing that came out when my um, when, when I when I left my last job in Switzerland, which was actually working for a communications agency in Geneva. Writing the book uh, basically was a turning point for me because it it opened doors to connecting with other people interested in the same in the same themes, uh, especially people within the effective altruism community that uh, I'm a part of. And then a couple of years later, actually, when I was when I'd already moved to Mallorca, I decided uh, it was time to start a new organization, which is something I'd had. Uh, the idea to do for for quite a few years already. That was about putting the ideas into practice. That's the organization for the prevention of intense suffering. Yeah, exactly. And it looks like there's quite a few people involved in this. How did you manage to to network with with so many people and get so many people on board? Were they people who had uh, read your book and and reached out, or were you actively pursuing people? Or how did that how did that come about? I, I would say that the first, I mean, aside from the people within the effective altruism community that I already started connecting with in Switzerland. Not long after, I ended up connecting with, I would say, some other activists based in Canada who are also very dedicated to the same idea. I think they'd read my book and they were interested in getting in touch with me. And so on one of my visits to Montreal to see my family, I uh, ended up meeting with them. Maybe I should, I should uh, yeah, sort of clarify that when I talk about activists, these are people that are, that are very much dedicated to the idea of alleviation of suffering as our highest priority. And it, it really reflects a deep, I would say that's a deep philosophical view that the prevention of suffering, you know, when it really comes down to it is actually more important than, you know, just trying to reproduce life and doing things the way everything has been done in the past. It's, it's almost like an ideological difference. And I don't want to emphasize the ideology too much because this isn't really about ideology. This is really about, about helping sentient beings. I would say that generally um, our culture tends to promote the idea that we should, you know, just have more children and and keep everything going because you know the, because everything is so beautiful and you know if you look at things in more detail without some of the biases of our culture, you realize that there really is a lot of suffering in the world and in nature and it's hard to justify that suffering just because of the beauty and the happiness.
I know, I know that can sound like a bit of a glum perspective and, and you know, I, that doesn't reflect my own personality. It's just a fact, you know, that there's a lot of suffering that we're not aware of, but that we prefer not to look at. You know, the, we're talking about suffering that can go to, you know, really, really extremes, suffering that nobody would ever be willing to, um, to experience uh, voluntarily. Getting back to the people I met uh, in, in Canada, they've got this very strong conviction that that there's there's nothing more important than, than trying to alleviate the suffering of humans and animals. And so these were my some of my first allies. I'd had the idea of starting up an organization, as I said, for, for some time, and they encouraged me to go ahead with it uh, in 2016. There were other people that ended up becoming involved through the Effective Altruism Network, uh, the Southern Network, which was actually, which is called the Algosphere. Uh, it's a network for the alleviation of suffering. I guess those were probably the two main uh, the two main networks sources right provide support to to Opus. First of all, I think that's obviously excellent that you you managed to get this organization off the ground and and to connect with people who were thinking similarly. The first question that came to mind though, when there is so much suffering in the world, which of course I agree with you that there is, and so many different issues and so many different topics, how did you pick a few of them that are that are sort of listed here? Initially, I, I would say we didn't have so much of a focus on specific causes that we were actually working on directly. Okay. Um, and we were trying to promote the, when we got Opus started, it was more the idea of promote the actual ethical principle. Just the philosophy. The one thing that matters the most. And we were talking about things like, uh, you know, we're calling attention to the abuse of uh, and torture of animals on factory farms and posting about that on, on Facebook, etc. When we started getting more uh, involved on concrete issues, the first issue we started to focus on was the lack of access to morphine for people with, with terminal cancer and other conditions that cause uh, severe pain. And, and, and this lack of access is uh, the case in many countries in the world, throughout Africa and throughout many countries in Latin America and Asia and Eastern Europe. The reason we focused on that was because it was an issue that we were already aware of. Somebody within the effective altruism community had already written a report about this. And, and then there was a a scientific article in the British medical journal, The Lancet, it was a very extensive article detailing the gap in access in low and middle income countries, the lack of access between what is uh, what was needed and what was actually available. So the timing was good. So we decided that one of the best things we could do is to actually hold an expert panel event at the Human Rights Council in Geneva. So when the Human Rights Council holds its uh, sessions, organizations can hold events in parallel they're basically part of a larger program uh, taking place at that time. And so we brought in a few experts basically to talk about uh, about the issue. And we wrote a, a guide to uh, to the issue uh, that can be used for advocacy and education. And so this allowed us to connect with other organizations, palliative care organizations worldwide that are, among other, other things, addressing this issue. And well, just to continue the story, what happened uh, afterwards was that uh, we were approached by a young doctor in Burkina Faso in West Africa, uh, who set up a palliative care organization uh, in this country, and he approached us for, for support. And as, as a result of him reaching out, we ended up establishing a close collaboration, basically crowdfunded a national conference in the country, and also provided uh, other support, helping to prepare documents to make the case. As a result, uh, the conference was held, co-organized with the Ministry of Health. The Minister of Health at the time uh, appeared at the conference, uh, along with uh, doctors and members of the government. Basically, this conference launched an initiative to create a palliative care program in the country. 
including access to morphine, because you can't have palliative care without morphine. When, when patients are suffering from a terminal disease like cancer, um, of course, you know, they need, they need to be provided with comfort, but because they're in so much pain, the highest priority is to give them, uh, is to give them uh, morphine in sufficient amounts so that they don't suffer from, from pain. So it was basically a combination of those things coming to light at the same time that sort of sparked it. And, and it's also something that I think universally could be understood. And as you said, many other countries that are going to be in a similar situation. Basically, we had a, a problem, people in pain that are not getting the medication they need, and a relatively simple solution, at least on paper. Morphine is readily available. Um, I mean, there, there, are like, there are all kinds of regulatory barriers, but the solution is there. You just need to lower the barriers. And, and well, it's not just that. You need to train doctors to prescribe it so it's not actually quite as simple as that and every country has its own regulations so if you really want to change things you need to see what's going on in any particular country you need somebody there who's passionate about it and 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 has the right contacts or can make the right contacts and identify what the obstacles are and and address them so in this particular case, we had somebody who was who was very passionate, you could say a local champion, and this made the collaboration uh, very easy. You know, it takes time to change things in any country where you're where the government is is involved. Um, since the conference took place um, at the end of 2019, things have been moving forward. Yeah, there have been steps that have been taken to to make it easier for people to get morphine and uh, and get the proper care that they need. And I can imagine too, like having that kind of a success must, you know, first of all, give you uh, the boost of confidence, but also when you're going to other countries, you have something kind of like backing you you have you have a, a story that you can bring to them and say okay maybe you you know the government here is a little bit different maybe the barriers are a little bit different but this is what we've done successfully elsewhere i imagine that must give you a, a bit of a, a credence and a bit of a boost in getting involved in another country that is maybe facing a similar shortage or yeah. similar barriers yeah we've had some contact with other countries we haven't done anything nearly as extensive in any other country you're you're right i mean it's given us credibility and you know it's nice to just to enter a field that you know we didn't really know anything about uh, a short time beforehand and you know gain some expertise and and actually be able to you know to move the dial in some ways you know and and so maybe I can move on to the next thing that we've been working on sure so, uh, there, there wasn't any immediate opportunity to work with another country I, I didn't want to just be doing you know crowdfunding there's there's obviously a need for um, there's, there's a need for, for more money flowing in to, to support local activities. But, um, you know, I always had my idea that we we're going to be moving more towards sort of high level activism at the level of governance so that things like access to morphine are taken seriously by governments, but also other issues as well. And the next issue we ended up turning to was um, another case where, where people are, uh, find themselves in, in, uh, in extreme pain. And that's something called cluster headaches which are not really that well known. They only affect about uh, one in a thousand people. Um, although that's as common as multiple sclerosis, which- Which, which every, everybody reason. has heard about, yeah. About that, when, right. when I was reading about this too, it was like cluster headache, what even, what even is that? So, so it was also yeah. news to me. So maybe you can explain, first of all, what that is. Well, until I started working on it, on it I didn't really know what it was either. I, I'd seen the term. It's basically an extremely severe headache. I mean, I know that migraines are very debilitating. Actually, reading more about migraines, I've, I've learned just how bad migraines are. Well, cluster headaches are like a whole, a whole different beast. Right. Um, and they can, they, they're basically attacks that can last typically around an hour. 
sometimes less, sometimes more. Uh, they can occur several times a day, also during the night. They can occur every day for, for several weeks or for months. In the case of episodic uh, patients and for right. about 50% of patients uh, that are chronic, uh, they basically these go on for months and years without really much of a break. Uh, so it's an extremely debilitating condition and um, they're called suicide headaches for obvious reasons. I mean, a lot mm -hmm. of patients... A lot of patients have suicidal ideations and uh, and some of them do take their lives to escape the pain so it's really it's really one of the worst things it's, it's actually considered to be one of the most excruciating conditions known to medicine you know it doesn't it doesn't kill people directly but it just makes their lives miserable right now what, what, so what's interesting is that i mean there are medications available but there isn't anything that's really really ideal or really perfect there are, there are side effects there aren't really any standard medications that are you know, extremely effective in preventing attacks from happening. There, there are injections that patients can take that work well initially, but then, then they stop working as well. Potentially, uh, they can lead to rebound attacks. So there's, there's and, and because of side effects, patients can't take as many as they would like, you know, so that they may only be able to take a shot a few times a day, but they may get many attacks a day. Right, because um, the side effects it, could be could be quite severe. Yeah. Yeah, cardiovascular effects. Um, How did the and, cluster headaches come to your attention? Sorry to interrupt, but I'm right. just curious. No, sure. So that's the thing. We, one of uh, um, the members of the Opus team, well, he's an advisor. He's a very interesting guy. He's a researcher into consciousness who is both very interested in, in, in states of bliss and how we can create them, but he's also very aware of the significance of extreme suffering. And he found out that people with cluster headaches, that, that their attacks can can be aborted within seconds by inhaling DMT. DMT is a drug that is found in ayahuasca. Uh, though in ayahuasca, it's present in ayahuasca and it's ingested uh, along with another substance that prevents it from being broken down in the, in the stomach. But when DMT is inhaled by, uh, well, I guess basically by, by smoking or vaporizing, it can abort attack within seconds. And, and that's really phenomenal. And so his initial thought was, well, everybody with cluster headaches should be able to get DMT. So I started looking into that and I found out that there's not so much evidence about DMT, although you know, very, very strong anecdotal evidence, but there's much more evidence uh, concerning psilocybin, which is the active component in um, hallucinogenic mushrooms. There, there are many more patients that have used psychedelic mushrooms, uh, not only to abort, but to prevent attacks, to, to actually prevent entire cycles from occurring. So our, our advocacy work ended up focusing mainly on psilocybin mushrooms, although also in other substances with, with uh, a similar chemical structure and that have been found to have similar effects, uh, like LSD uh, and like uh, DMT. And so really the, what we wanted to do is show that there's overwhelming evidence, not yet from, from clinical trials, which is sort of the gold standard, but you know, a sufficient number of patients that have had such dramatic results using using psilocybin mushrooms that there's really not much doubt that the substance is effective and when people are in such pain you know you you've got to give them the opportunity to try anything that might work in addition you know the mushrooms are are are, are quite safe i mean these are among the safest substance sa safest mind-altering substances you can take uh you know alcohol is really at the other end of the spectrum alcohol is, is considered a standard part of our culture and right and you can advertise it and so on and actually it causes it causes way more harm than anything like uh, like mushrooms so you know our, our it just goes to show that our society and our governments 
don't get their priorities right. And the highest priority should be to, to help people who are in agony. So I, I think for me, you know, it's an open and shut case in terms of whether this is justified. And the question is just how do you persuade legislature, legislators and, and other members of, of, uh, of the government to change regulations? And have you, have you started already with like campaigning in, in, in a specific country or, or what? You know what is the what is the next step yeah. into, into being able to get that going? So we uh, so we wrote a policy paper that came out at the end of uh, 2020, which we uh, circulated to you know, various organizations and governments that uh, that, um, that we thought I thought might be might be interested and in, should take these these um, this information into account. But we've had we've set up um, a few collaborations. We've been collaborating closely with with cluster headache organizations in in the states. Uh, we've got a very close collaboration with one in Finland, where we've actually been working to to approach members of the government and things are moving forward there. Last September, I addressed a working group in uh, the um, in the Finnish parliament that's been well, initially there was a group looking at migraines and then because of a presentation there, MPs became interested in cluster ethics as well. So I, I got to speak a little bit about that and about the ethics. So there's a group of MPs from across the political spectrum that are definitely interested in the topic and, and how to help cluster headache patients. So the, things are moving forward there. Uh, unfortunately, the, the, well, the group, the cluster headache group in Finland is, uh, you know, it's a small group and people don't always have the, because of the condition, not, people don't always have the energy to, uh, to be carrying out advocacy all the time. Right, um, but this, right. But this is a project that's moving moving forward little by little. And then in Canada, we set up a partnership last year with Theracil, which is a Canadian nonprofit that has already successfully uh, obtained exemptions for the use of psilocybin uh, by patients, not yet for cluster headaches, but for, for things like anxiety and and depression which you would think so would almost be almost be lower on the on the pain level in some ways yeah i mean I, i'm sure some of these people are suffering suffering a lot but maybe not maybe maybe they're not in the same kind of pain as with uh, as with cluster headaches but anyway i mean the, 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 so there's a precedent there and i approached terracil with the idea that we could do the same thing for cluster headaches and they were very excited about this and um they've actually established a, a program on cluster headaches where they've uh well we work together to bring to to find cluster headache patients in canada who mainly were already using psilocybin but uh to give them the opportunity to do so legally mm-hmm. and so there, there, there have been several applications that have been sent to the uh to the health ministry in canada things had kind of the whole sort of approval process seemed to have shut down and now it seems to have picked up again. The health minister has actually come back with more questions, which means that they're considering the applications. And we're really at the point now where we're, once the questions are, are answered, we, we expect there might be a response fairly quickly. It's really kind of a fingers crossed kind of situation. The, the justification for them giving exemptions is, um, is very strong. And do you think the fact that, you know, marijuana is, has been legalized and there's shops where you can go and buy this in Canada is leading to other exemptions for, for, for other, um, other uh, substances to be approved? Yeah, I mean, I, so I guess you could say that overall the, the climate has changed in terms of how people perceive uh, mind-altering substances. They're no longer considered, no longer demonized. Uh, right. The way they, they have been for decades as a result of the war on drugs, um, which has caused so much misery by turning people turning people with dependency issues into criminals and you know, various other sort of collateral uh, collateral effects. 
So things are moving, things are changing, uh, but it takes time. You know, there's there's support. I think in Canada, there's I, I think a poll that was that was carried out so that you know a large majority of Canadians are actually in favor of people being able to use psilocybin for medical purposes. So I'm you know, I'm cautiously optimistic that things will will move forward there. And if we we do get the success we're we're hoping for, this will be basically a, a foot in the door that will allow us to to point to this case as a as a precedent and uh, and try to use it to when we advocate in other countries as well. Right. And it's not right. It's, this is not an endpoint in Canada either because we don't feel that every every cluster headache patient should have to request an exemption from the government. And uh, Therosil has been, uh, with our support, has been um, advocating that this should be a decision that's left up to doctors in cons- consultation with their, with their patients. And it might eventually become left up to, to individuals if they want to do it. It might go the similar route with, uh, with marijuana, where initially people had to have medical exemptions. And then eventually as a society, you know, they decided, okay, actually people can make their own choices for what they want to take. So it, it's, it's very fascinating. It's great that, that, it's, that it's going that uh, route, but it, and it will be interesting to see if it follows that same path of initially medical exemption. Later on, we just respect the individuals enough to be able to make an uh, informed decision as adults what they want to ingest and w- what works for them. I mean, there, there's an effort also in Canada to decriminalize drugs. In fact, you know, I, I've, I've been in contact with one of the MPs, um, the MP who has actually uh, presented uh, two distinct bills in the House of Commons proposing decriminalization, but it, it seems that uh, there, there might not be sufficient support for that bill at the moment. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think things have moved yet, but that, you know, that, uh, there are other countries, well, certainly Portugal is the sort of classic example of a country that has decriminalized drugs and uh, with success, you know, we're seeing also in, um, we're, seeing, we're seeing in other places as well that this is, this is the trend. People are not being uh, are not being arrested or prosecuted for for possession, and you know it's sort of a separate issue in in some ways. Um, you know how drugs are treated overall as a society, although it's closely related to the fact that that uh, that we have this problem for for specifically for cluster headache patients. I'm definitely in favor of decriminalization. I mean, this is also the I guess we can say the official stance of of Opus, and and again, it just because. Well, for, for a couple of basic reasons, one is that um, one is that it does uh, criminalizing drugs overall does more harm than good, and secondly, you can consider it basically a human right to have autonomy over our own consciousness. It shouldn't be for a government to tell us whether or not we're allowed to explore uh, different states of consciousness. Maybe particularly in the current climate with with the pandemic and and the vaccinations, where where the government on the one hand is getting very involved in making you know certain rules about what you can and can't do if you're not vaccinated. So it's it's in some ways hypocritical to be saying on the one hand you must ingest this, but you can't ingest something else that you want to choose. It, it's it's yeah kind of playing game playing games with our autonomy to a certain degree. Yeah, that's a very good point, and you know this is. This is a big issue that I've been thinking about, uh, thinking about a lot as well. You know, I I, I definitely believe that the vac- that uh, the vaccines are are helpful, uh, are are very helpful in uh, in in protecting many people from uh, you know serious consequences of, of of COVID. You know, when when COVID appeared and we didn't know just how bad it was going to get, or you know, people were think- hoping that a vaccine would be developed uh, relatively soon and. So, you know, I, I think the fact that vaccines exist is something that we can be grateful for. H- having said that, 
I've had a lot of conversations or well, a number of conversations with people who who don't want to be vaccinated and uh and i you know i, I wanted to understand where they're where they're coming from and um you know I, I think some of the arguments are better than others i don't necessarily agree with everyone in terms of the you know say the scientific arguments but i i don't think society i don't think governments should be should be forcing people to get vaccinated because you know it's, it is an issue of uh, bodily autonomy you know it, it's, it's it's a difficult question because you know there's there's a concern about you know what happens if lots of unvaccinated people end up getting very sick and uh, and hospital wards uh, icu units are are overwhelmed it is an issue but i don't think the solution is to coerce people i think the solution is to have a very great deal of transparency about about data about facts and educating people and uh, allowing people to make the to make the best decision because i think if people are, are properly informed uh, and they know and they can trust their government to provide them with uh, transparent information that includes pluses and minuses um, i think you know the most people will end up making the you know the the, the decision that is actually most in their interest yeah as well as the interest of society. I, I I just don't think taking a heavy-handed approach is uh, is is the correct is the correct one. No, and can often backfire in in many cases because people will you know get more defensive and 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 maybe be if they were on the fence about taking it, they they may actually be even less likely to if they feel that they are being cornered and and have to do it in order to yeah. participate in society. I think we've seen that in some of the countries yeah. where they've really tried to be strict on it, it's actually sparked the anti-vaxxer movements in some cases well people don't like people in general don't like being told what to do that's true and, uh, <laughs> that is very true <laughs> myself then, you know, myself included <laughs> um i know that we don't have uh, too much time and you you have some other meetings uh today but i wanted to just quickly if you could touch on a little bit about one of the other issues that your organizers organization focuses on which is the ending of the torture of non-human animals maybe you could touch on how that got involved when when the other uh issues we've discussed have been about human suffering so i mean this has been uh really at the forefront of our concerns uh since the beginning and the reason is very simple the number of non-human animals that are that that suffer uh on factory farms is is huge i mean it, it, it dwarfs the number of humans on the planet i mean i I can't remember the exact figure. It's something like 70 to 80 billion land animals that are consumed for food every year. And that doesn't include um, either wild fish or, or farmed fish. It's a massive moral issue because there's so much suffering that is inflicted. And people know it. They know it, but they don't want to know it. You know, they know it happens, but everybody else is eating meat and people just don't want to look look at the truth i mean that's a generalization because i think you know people are becoming more aware and uh the idea of of leaving animals off the plate is it's no longer considered uh radical and uh you know especially younger people are much more likely to to be to be vegan or vegetarian although you know when i say vegetarian you know it's vegetarian is it's definitely better than eating animals, but you know there's a lot of suffering that goes into the dairy and egg industry that, that occurs within those industries. So really, if, if one wants to avoid contributing to the torture of animals, the best thing is just is just not to consume uh, animal products. But you know the question how to how to change things on a large scale um, it's it's a difficult one. I haven't been so tuned into the latest research in terms of what seems to be most effective. 
you know, at one point it was felt that, you know, standing on the corner leafleting, providing people with, with, uh, with written information was one of the most cost-effective ways of leading to consumer change. And uh, I'm not sure if, that, uh, if that's still believed to be the case. Um, it seems that often bigger progress is made by working with institutions, for example, by getting companies to agree to, uh, to, to stop uh, keeping chickens in cages. Um, right. Now that's, still, right. that's still more about, that's a welfare issue. Uh, it's not, that, that doesn't mean that they're going to stop, uh, stop enslaving chickens. And, and even with, even the ones that aren't kept in, in small cages, they don't, uh, they, they hardly have wonderful lives. I mean, there's, there's this myth about, uh, about happy animals and, uh, you know, very few animals that are consumed uh, have lived happy lives. And then I would just add, even, even if that were the case, you know, to, to end an animal's life uh, in a slaughterhouse is, is a pretty, it's a pretty horrible thing to, to uh, subject another sentient being to, you know, just because the food, just because it tastes good, um, and just because the because the slaughter is only a relatively short period in the whole animal's life, it's not a justification for for doing it. You know, we, we wouldn't do that to our own pet, mm-hmm. our own companion animal. There's absolutely no reason to. Uh, it's, it's not really ju- it's not justifiable to do it to another to another animal mm-hmm. uh, just because it's been raised for that purpose. I'm just um, I'm just stating a couple of obvious arguments. But you know, if the question is, you know, how do we how what can we do to this uh, to to, to contribute to to advocacy here you know we're, we haven't been focusing so much on on actual campaigns although i've given i've given a few talks on suffering of animals so it, it is something that's always sort of central to my concerns and whenever we talk about suffering in humans like in press releases and and in uh you know on our website and elsewhere make a point of always calling attention to uh to non-human animal suffering as well mm-hmm. and our bigger you know our our, our bigger ambition is to promote change in how governance is carried out so that it's based in solidly based in, a, in an ethic of, of non-suffering that applies to all sentient beings. So it's a way of just, I guess what I want to say is that um, the, the, the core principle that non-human animals have just as much of a right not to suffer as we do is something that we're continually advocating. And this is, this is part of the, part of what we're, uh, part of, part of the messages that that we talk about and part of the program that we're trying to present uh, to, to governments and other organizations, you know, basically as part of what our vision for the society of the future. Right. That's, so that, it, that's it, sort of yeah. what I was going to ask, actually, was how you how you maybe address that for people who are looking at your organization and saying, OK, this sounds great. They're looking to prevent suffering in humans. And there's all these different things that, you know, there's, I mean, you, you've touched on a couple of them with the cluster headaches and uh, access to morphine. Uh, how, how do you react to people who sort of say, well, there's so many other issues that humans are suffering from that you could be focusing on? Why all of a sudden would you would you look at animals? shouldn't we maybe be addressing the, the human suffering uh, as a right. priority yeah. and then, then look at the animals? How would, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, the answer is very simple. Um, suffering is an experience. It's an internal state, irrelevant what a sentient being looks like from the outside or you know what kind of intellectual skills the being has. In other words, suffering is suffering. If a sentient being is experiencing extreme suffering, it's irrelevant whether it's a human or a non-human animal. We may care more because we're more attached to humans who are, you know, our friends or our family. Right. We may be more attached to our, our own companion animal, uh, our own dog, 
than um, you know than some anonymous uh, pig that's stuck in a cage in, um, in some rural area that nobody sees. But every single being matters just as much. So if if you if you accept the fact that extreme suffering is something that has, should have the top priority in terms of action, then you just have to look at look at the experience and see who is experiencing it and uh, and whether it's a human or an animal. Uh, there's a there's a a similarly dramatic appeal to action. Yeah, and and you could maybe even argue when you were saying that you know the way people feel for some of their companion animals for their pet, uh, there's a a good chance some of them would care more about the you know the the family dog than uh, a random human that they know nothing about on the other side of oh, the world. Probably so. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think that I don't think there's anything inherently wrong to you know to acknowledge and and um, even respect the fact that we might care more we care more about some some people and some animals and others i mean that you know it's just, it's just human psychology it would be actually a pretty strange world if we if we treated if we didn't give any kind of preference to those close to us over strangers i mean i think mm -hmm. that's something we need to accept but you know if you take it if you look at it from a more from a more global perspective uh, the way the way governments make laws and just overall, the priorities of, of our society shouldn't—they shouldn't be so skewed towards those who we happen to be close to. You know, there has to be a certain amount of impartiality, and and basically treating all sentient beings, uh, the suffering of all sentient beings equally, um, with the obvious exceptions of us, you know, being willing to go a little farther to help those close to us. And that's normal, but uh, but as a basic sort of as a basic framework for how we run our society, um, it should really be based on on impartiality as we apply the ethics. That makes sense, and and not only for the suffering of the animals, but there has to be suffering involved on behalf of the humans who uh, wind up taking these actions and ending the lives of the animals or being being a part of the cruelty. Um, I refuse to, to think that, you know, this cannot affect them somehow the same way that soldiers on the battlefield get affected by by killing, uh, that this must have some impact on the, the people who are playing a role yeah. In, yeah. In, in killing animals too. So even even from a, a selfish, you know, humanist perspective, we are probably increasing our suffering by causing suffering to animals. I mean, you're absolutely right, and um, even people that are involved in the in the in the killing process, you know, I mean, some people might feel very angry at people for for being involved, but you know, people need jobs, and people end up doing things that they that they don't particularly enjoy, and then they get traumatized. So, you know, the bigger the bigger picture is is you know, how can we aim for a for a gentler society where where we don't kill and torture uh, for our pleasure. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems like the most obvious thing to to say. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 you shouldn't need organizations advocating for this, but but you know, humans are humans are complex, and humans are selfish and <laughs> altruistic and kind and cruel, and uh, and it depends on the you know people. Uh, you know, we're not we're not we're not perfect beings. Um, no, no, and we're we're we habitual need, we need, we need as well. We need, we need people. We need advocates, and we need. We need also some constraints. We also need governments to, uh, sometimes we need governments to take the lead and say, well, you know, this is obviously, these kinds of things are not okay. We need to change how we live so that we're not, we're not inflicting uh, suffering on, on others.
Absolutely. Well, Jonathan, thank you very much for joining and for all the work that you're doing with these types of uh, issues. And I'm sure that you will be adding to this list as the organization continues to, to move forward. Like you said initially, there isn't any shortage of suffering and shortage of issues out there, but it's uh, incredibly inspiring to see this kind of uh, organization come about. And, and it's also very um, gratifying to see that you, you've been having some successes with, with some of the issues too. So I wish you uh, a lot of luck uh, moving forward and, uh, and a lot of success with, with these issues. And, and thank you again for joining me today and for, for the work you've done. Well, th thanks a lot, Eric. I've, I appreciate you having me on the podcast and uh, it's been really nice chatting with you. Okay. Bye for now. Take care. Okay, so that will do it for another episode of Meanwhile in Athens. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you like this podcast, you can consider joining my Patreon, and I will talk to all of you very soon. Bye for now.